You're listening to Stranger Still, a podcast about Netflix's Stranger Things and the wonderful weirdness of being alive. I'm Matt Civico, and I'll be your guide on this curiosity voyage beyond the material. We're going to get metaphysical. So this is Stranger Still, and today we're looking at Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street. This season, we're still on Season 1 of Stranger Things, and uh, I'm here with Zach, as usual. Hello. And uh, today we're going to uh, explore the different groups of characters in, uh, in Stranger Things. And I think we get a really good snapshot of this in the second chapter. And we have our uh, the kids that everybody loves. We have the uh, the teens. So we have Jonathan, Nancy, and uh, and eventually Steve gets more and more involved. And we have our uh, our adults. So the um, parents of Mike, uh, but more specifically Joyce and uh, and Chief Hopper. Yeah. Who uh, who are more more involved there? Um, and I I love how the show kind of gives us these three parallel tracks uh, to explore the mystery, right? Everyone has their own reasons for wanting to find Will. And uh, and there's someone in every group that's pretty committed to that. We have the the kids with uh, Lucas, Mike, and, uh, and Dustin, who have just lost their best friend. And like good kids, they're kind of willing to do anything, even if it's not uh, not super wise uh, to to find their friend, which they do at the end of chapter one, right? They go out into the rain and the storm, and uh, they come back with a random shaved head girl uh, in a uh, in a yellow t shirt instead of their friend, mm. and uh, and then they go from there. And um, what did uh, what did you think of the way that the show does that with the parallel? Uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting to me that we each have our own. Yeah, and I mean, this is the great thing about movies in general and and film in general. Any story really is that everybody approaches it from their own perspective and relates to the characters in their own way. But in this show, we have such a depth of things to relate to. I mean, if you're a kid watching this movie, you're probably going to relate to the kids more, and and. It's funny thinking back to how I conceived of shows when I was when I was younger of stories I I never questioned the the actions of the heroes. I always just assumed that they were the right actions. Uh I, as you grow older you start to question is that really a good decision or is it not? You get a little wiser or or think you're wiser maybe and and you're surprised sometimes by the outcomes of things that might not have been a good decision in your opinion. Um so I think that's the thing that struck me most about this particular episode is that as you know we mentioned in episode 1 that these characters each have their tropes and kind of obvious elements to them whether they be the nerdy children or the star-crossed lovers or the practical worried adults uh they each have their their individual element but that element is then really just taken to a next level in this second episode as the kids confront something that they're afraid of and challenged by, and the the teens are confronted by consequences of bad decisions, or uh, yeah, really just dramatic consequences of of bad decisions as well. Yeah. Uh, 
in in terms of how how Barb ends up in the second episode, uh, and the grown ups are you know just dealing with the reality of the fact that probably a more sober angle on how this child has disappeared and how do we how do we deal with it? And uh, I, I think you're exactly right. And the what really works uh, in my eyes with dividing it among these three groups, um, how they each kind of pursue the mystery is that the show was conceived of as a show about kids for adults. Mm. And, uh, and I remember reading that, uh, the Duffer brothers had some, had a hard time kind of selling this concept. Networks told them that, uh, if it's going to be about kids, then it has to be for kids it has to be a kid's show. Um, and if it's going to be, you know, if you want to sell this, then it has to be more about Hopper and Joyce. Those are the, that's the main, the, the main characters. And, and I love that it gives all three of these groups pretty much equal screen time uh, and eventually brings them all together. And, uh, and the kids, you see that their, their motivation is different, right? They've obviously want to find their friend, have a hard time uh, maybe considering the like the reality that their friend might be yeah. dead um and their imaginations allow them to imagine all the possibilities just like in the games that they play uh for for heroism right they're gonna go out there and they're gonna look for will um and it's uh they really are motivated by uh almost playing the characters that they wish they that they were uh which i remember is how I made a lot of decisions when I was a kid. And so we see that really clearly that their imaginations take them on, on this adventure. It's the, of course the, the, the love for their friend, but the, what they do is then kind of translated through, through that, you know, we got to gear up and, and get out. there. Yeah. Yeah. And their, their imaginations also confront reality. So uh, that's where the real decision-making and conflict comes from. So it's, they're not just, uh, they're not stereotypical tropey heroes. They're not just mm-hmm. they're they're not the white knights, you know. They they are good and they have good motivations, but they soon come to the reality that the characters they want to play via Dungeons and Dragons coming out into their imaginations and how they they want to express being the warrior or the the leader, the the dungeon master or uh or or the the one who sticks everything together and protects um, those characters don't necessarily mesh. They have areas mm-hmm. in which they overlap and also areas in which they conflict. So you see as they confront L, especially their relationship with L as Lucas becomes stressed that we're not focusing enough on our goal. We don't, we have to focus on will. Will is the real issue here. We don't care. I don't care about this girl. You're, you're, you know, Mike is, getting off track with this girl and yeah the distraction yeah. right from yeah. the mission right? so it, those two characters have that confrontation in the in the room then and and they're then confronted with a whole new reality of of who l is in terms of her abilities and then of course uh you know becomes a great help to them yeah there's a potential there for uh being being a great ally and uh, and the teens one thing uh, i noticed about uh about Nancy, towards whom I have no uh, no great dislike. I like Nancy, mm. but uh, as a teenager, she's 
fairly self-absorbed uh, through this whole thing. This is her brother's friend. She acknowledges that it's a sad thing. Um, she has probably seen this type of thing on the news before, or has an awareness of sometimes kids go missing. Um, but nothing, she, she stays pretty self-absorbed until the strange happenings start to touch her social relationships, yeah. which, uh, which is a pretty big deal when you're in high school, right? Um, and so the run-ins with Jonathan at school, it kind of forces her, she's unable to ignore, uh, that she can't just keep going on with her, her life as normal. And then things really step up when uh, she's taking these these teenage sorts of risks, having uh, these going to the house party uh, at Steve's and bringing along Barb, and uh, and and poor Barb, poor Barb, just, uh, pays uh, pays a bit of the consequences for for Nancy's uh, pursuit of the teenage dream, I guess. <laughs> the popularity contest of high school. It's it's really well represented here. Uh, and, and I think the, the fact that they don't spend too much time on it, you know, it's something that's been explored enough to where we, we know the ins and outs of it, but, uh, certainly practical Barb and, and the fact that Nancy even has a relationship with Barb shows you her past, shows you where she came from. Nancy used to be a lot more of the smart girl in class probably, and, mm. and got along with Barb just based on that practicality and, now she's looking elsewhere you know what's what's truly important and the imbalance of how you consider the importance of your relationship with the opposite sex in high school is is really well done here you you see yeah. how her relationship with steve is exaggerated and she finds it this wild and fanciful thing to have you know the hot guy in school and and the king a, yeah the king <laughs> king steve king hair man and then <laughs> the popular kids you know and i think it's interesting to have the parallel between her and barb and then to have that end in such a dramatic fashion i mean it shows you the consequences of those of, of, of those decisions so yeah she goes from being you know she strikes me as being part of the mathletes and, uh, oh, yeah. and then taking some the first steps from that sort of safe uh safe bubble of uh of kind of adult sanctioned high school life into the more uh exploratory areas of uh <laughs> let me see if i can date the hottest guy what is it going to take to to uh to do this and one of my she le certainly learns some stuff about herself and uh, and she tests those boundaries and uh that leads to some some consequences yeah so barb being one of those consequences and uh and i'm happy that uh the show takes takes the time to to explore that right like that's not a throwaway barb doesn't i mean i think a lot of people felt that barb got cheated mm. sort of but really i think it's it's just a great way to to let the nancy's character grow a lot yeah because she has consequences for um her decisions and then and then we get to see uh how that plays into getting those three parallel groups of, uh, of people, the kids, the teens, and the grownups working together. Uh, and I think the grownups, the grownups are really, really interesting. Um, one thing that really draws me to Hopper is not his, not his negativity, but I do, I see Hopper as sort of this almost suffering servant type character. 
And I think there's a point in the second episode in chapter two when he everything's going wrong, right? Uh, he finds Benny at the restaurant having apparently committed suicide. Uh, Will is missing. It's just all these terrible things that are happening in this small town where they're not supposed to happen. And uh, and I think he he wakes up. I don't know. He's also, he's self medicating with like another woman, uh, random woman who we don't learn the name of is in his bed, and uh, he's out on his porch and he asks her, "Do you ever feel cursed?" Mm. And as someone who is spending spending more and more time adulting, uh, that's something that I can identify with a yeah. little bit. Yeah. When things just uh, don't work out quite the way that you're expecting them to. And uh, when you think of Hopper's character and the things that he's he's gone through that get revealed through the course of the show, I feel like that's a profound profound motivator for his character. It's, it's a motivator and it's something that shows you the conflict that any character, any person goes through when confronted with the reality of their mistakes and their past or just the reality of the sadness of their past or tragedy that happens. How do you confront that tragedy? How do you confront the reality of your mistakes? And I think Hopper is the best example of that in the series. He has certainly gone through the most, I would say, in terms of uh, having a difficult past, uh, which isn't quite revealed yet in episode two, but we, we get hints of there. Um, definitely are, are about his daughter and and how she she died but how hopper internalizes that you know it becomes a little clearer as the episode comes along and then he's thrust into this situation again that he doesn't want to be a part of but he's the only guy who can do it and and he instead of reacting by retreating and uh going back into the shell of you know living in his trailer and brushing his teeth with beer he he decides to move forward and and to be the point man and he really is the engine of i'd say he's the engine of the entire show he's he's the the core element that keeps everything moving because you know the the kids are super important characters but hopper is the one who orders the kids around sometimes and says listen you yeah. guys need to watch out this is serious this is more than what you think it is even they're they're choosing to go to 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 disobey hopper's sort of direct uh direct orders to yeah. them to to not go looking for their friend <laughs> um is is that that kind of you know childlike willfulness uh in the face of not understanding what the adults are are talking about and uh and you know with their crazy imaginations thinking about what they could do right and they're they refuse to not do anything um and so they they go out looking anyway yeah and yeah i think i think you're right i think uh hopper for me does seem like he he drives things along and of course there's like this this tension in him where we see this part of him that wants to shut down it's kind of why probably why he went went to hawkins in the first place and um wants to shut down but he can't hmm uh, he just he can't not follow the leads, and uh, and we see him here start start picking up the the first clues that take him uh you know to the to the stranger things that that await him, and uh, and of course I feel like Joyce is a a great 
influence on him in the in this right Joyce's just willingness to believe anything yeah. if it means that there's a possibility that she might get to will mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's another uh, I think that's a fascinating dynamic between them it's not that Hopper is un unwilling to believe it's just that he you almost have to like chip away at the parts of him that have that have like hardened and calcified he just doesn't feel uh, in quite the same way anymore but choice yeah that 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 relationship is beautifully symbolized in the first episode when Joyce arrives on time for the appointment and he's late you know like it's it's a, it's a missing child and he's just i mean he didn't know it at the time but at the same time you know he's he's showing up to his job as a policeman to a woman who wants to meet with him about something and he's late and the woman's like you're late you know Joyce is just that shows you the right at the start you know this is she's a few steps ahead of him in in every way in terms of wanting her son back and, mm-hmm. and wanting to keep things moving forward and then you see he just ramps up more and more as he gets more and more involved yeah so he's a he's a doer i mean the guy's been through a lot but uh he certainly refuses to not give everything a, a fair hearing even when he's not uh he's not super open to you know how, what happened to the phone the phone gets fried yeah. Yeah. um he he looks for the most the uh, the most obvious explanation to things, but uh, that's why it's fun to see him come around to the the bigger things at play, the stranger things, if you will allow me. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's um, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with our metaphysical moment. We'll see you in a minute. Hey, Matt here for the mid-roll, part of the show when I radio in for some one-on-one time. What do you think of Stranger Still? I'd love to know, and you can tell me at Stranger Still Pod on Twitter or on my Patreon page. Speaking of Patreon, that's the best way to support the show and also get access to a secret audio archive recently released by the Hawkins Lab. Check it out at patreon.com slash mattcivico. That's M-A-T-T-C-I-V-I-C-O. There'll be a link in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to it. Over. Okay, so it's time to get metaphysical. And um, today, we're going to be building off of the last episode where we talked a little bit about the the extra and the ordinary and how the show uh, takes these gives us these very familiar mundane tropes and uh, and then really shakes them up with uh, with the stranger things that uh, that they throw at the characters and uh, I thought we could talk a little bit about the mundane and the strange so it's similar sort of idea uh, about how that uh, how that plays out in the show, and I found a uh, an article sort of looking at this called uh, "Imagining Stranger Things," and uh, it's from the website Christ and Pop Culture, written by uh, Ian McLeod, and it starts with a question, and I think we should we should answer it and kind of see where it goes. So uh, the very first opening line of this article asks, "When did you lose your imagination?" 
When did you lose your imagination, Zach? When did you when did you grow up? Oh man, I mean, my thoughts go to Peter Pan. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't ever want to grow up. Um, and I think there's a certain value to that type of thinking, but there's also uh, uh, there can be an, an, an a man child dependence upon your imagination in a certain way that is unhealthy. Um, I think we touched on that actually in episode zero, where talking about the uh, the the relationship between nostalgia and how we view it. Right. Imagination is a heavy part of how we view our growing up and and what we experience. Then, I think I haven't really lost my imagination. I I'm a naturally a very creative person. I enjoy creating things. And it takes a pretty hefty imagination, I think, to do that. Um, but also to be able to enjoy, uh, you know, movies and books and and music. All of that requires an imagination of sorts. But I, th- I think the question for me would be more, how has it changed? How has it morphed over the years? Because I certainly am, am much, much different than what I was as a child. I think my thinking was much more open. Uh, I had a lot more randomness. Mm. to my imagination before uh certainly more of an openness i think i mean i think i'm in the same boat as you in that i i would definitely would not describe myself as someone who has abandoned their imagination or lost their imagination um yeah like you said you're a musician i'm a writer and while i don't write a whole lot of uh of fiction myself that's something that i'm always thinking about i enjoy stories um, I tend to not enjoy sort of contemporary fiction. I'm not interested in, you know, a story about someone's problem at work. I'd much rather read a story about, uh, someone who goes to work at, uh, you know, a, a, a ranch that trains griffins for, <laughs> for dragon jousting, right? So something like that. That's, that, that's where, I, that's where I situate myself. But like you said, it's changed, right? It's not the same as when you're a kid. And um, I guess I would say that now my imagination is more qualified mm. and not qualified as it doesn't have like special badge or something. I mean that I've, I'm always putting sort of limits on my imagination or I'm uh, making sure that there's, there's caveats yeah. on, uh, on some of those things. I'll say, you know, this is, how I would like something to be, or this is an idealized version of something that I'm imagining, but then I, you know, anchor it to reality and kind of bring it down uh, a little bit, which of of course is useful, but uh, at the same time, it also can, it weakens your imagination a little bit. You're always sort of uh, throwing up roadblocks uh, in front of it. But we see that it's it's the the kids in the show, their imaginations of what's possible, the the possibilities that they see is uh it drives them forward and makes them, you know, some of the most interesting characters to follow. Uh, because they're really they believe that they're going to find their friend. Yeah. And uh, and you really have to I mean, you have to use your imagination to get past all of those those hard, uh, depressing facts uh, about missing kids yeah. to uh, to be able to push through that and still and have hope. Even 
I guess the the comparison between innocence and imagination and and thoughtful imagination, like you put it, qualifications. I think that's how the average adult thinks about things that are inconceivable. You know, mm-hmm. we have to put parameters around it. Kids don't have that parameter, um, so that's that's a massive difference, and that shows in the show in terms of how the kids innocently move forward. They just go. Whereas, you know, Hopper is trying to get all the facts and reason things out and do all the practical work. The kids just do it. Um, Because can you kill an interdimensional monster with a wrist rocket? Why not? I mean, yeah, I mean, who knows? Does anyone know how to kill an interdimensional monster? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So you may as well try the wrist rocket. (laughs) And it's true, you know, I guess the, the imagination of a child produces massive jumps to conclusions um like i said in in our first episode i i feel like my conception of the hero's story as a child was much more in the vein of well he's just going to do the right thing without having to think about what is the right thing what is really the right thing and uh that's what a lot of those fairy tale type stories can really cause us to think about later on as adults you know is that a moral action did that really end up right you know is is uh is is the end game of this truly what we want it to be is that what i would do if i was really encountering that similar situation you know and that kind of just goes to show what sort of responsibility storytellers have yeah right that we And even as adults, I think we do this unconsciously. It might be different kinds of stories, not necessarily these uh, heroic narratives or fairy tales, but um, we believe stories and we project them onto our lives and we make some decisions based on, on how we believe the story should go, right? If you just even just think about uh, something as overused, and sort of ill-defined as as the American dream, right? <laughs> that people have this idea that there's this sequence of success that is how life is supposed to progress, and that people make all sorts of good and bad decisions based on believing that story. Mm. So yeah, just the the responsibility, because like you said, you know, you as a kid, you experience something like a, a TV show, a video game, a, a storybook. And you just assume because this is a hero and this is good that you want to, you want to do those things you want to emulate. Yeah. This makes me think of, you know, when I have kids, what stories am I going to, to share with them? Because you can't escape being, being shaped by right. stories. It's, it's, it's such a strong thing. And uh, so I'm, what I'm going to do, I've got a, chunk of a passage here from the article uh, imagining stranger things that I, I think is really good and kind of uh, i guess justifies what we just said maybe and uh, we'll, we'll see how it fits and how it differs but uh, i think it's it's a really good uh, really interesting uh, comment on the, on this topic of imagination uh, so he starts by so i'll just read the whole thing so in this instance the duffers are relying on a familiar trope bumbling adults who appear to be fools and capable children who are the truly wise ones. However, viewing stranger things in this light fails to acknowledge a truth we all know, even if it is one we often forget. Children, with their openness to all kinds of possibilities and their active imaginations, are often able to see what adults miss. 
they are humble enough to acknowledge that there exists more than what we can see, touch, and feel, more beyond the borders of what we reason to be true. And honestly, if there's like, if you wanted to summarize what I love about Stranger Things, and even the the approach we've taken, this concept of wanting to explore the metaphysical elements of Stranger Things and bring them into, you know, our everyday lives. And what can we learn about looking at the world this way? Well, I think what we learn is that that's actually how the world works. Mm. That uh, that you need this. There is more than what you can see and reason to, right? There, Not even that there's just limits to my reason, right? That's sort of a standard amount of humility that I don't know everything. But even above that saying that, well, there's things that reason doesn't give us access to. And, and that's what, you know, really gets me, gets me thinking. It's interesting that that openness that a child experiences, and I'm interested to see how the seasons progress if they tie this type of thinking into it that I'm about to talk about. Um, as a child experiences those first things with that openness and, and, and receptiveness and just kind of reacting rather than uh, thinking things through. Those are the, the kind of things that shape what they look back on and then end up making practical decisions off of. That's a good point. So it's this imaginative, fanciful reality that they're going to be the heroes that rescue their friends that will then shape and motivate their character. Uh, and not just storytelling character, but their their actual moral character mm -hmm. as people throughout the rest of their lives. It's those decisions that they look back on, and when they come up against a similar decision, they look back to that decision and think to themselves, well, what did I do then? And that's how they then are motivated to move forward and, and make decisions. It's, it's all about learning patterns. Um, and this is why I think Going back to one of our original discussions on, on nostalgia, looking at the past through rose-colored glasses, which I think is a very common uh, mis mistake that a lot of modern-day people make, uh, the 80s was so much better. <laughs> the, the 50s were better. The 60s were the ultimate period of time. You know? Everyone's got their golden age. Exactly. And it's always the age you grew up in. Mm -hmm. Or... You could maybe study history and, and feel like you belong in a different period of time. I always felt like I belonged in the 20s. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's looking at these with optimal, optimized uh, perspectives. You know, there's, there's not really that much gold in the golden age you think that you would prefer. Or, I mean, I think often the gold is there. It's just that we ignore all the other stuff right. that would, uh, you know, tarnish that or get in between us and and the good things that were present in a in a particular time. I just watched a movie recently uh, from Woody Allen called Midnight in Paris, and just to briefly describe it, it, it describes what we're talking about perfectly. Uh, Owen Wilson's character discovers that he can go back to 1920s Paris, which was when he imagined to be the perfect time, and as he moves in that world and discovers people in it he discovers a woman and him and that woman eventually go back to the renaissance period which was when she thought was the golden era from her 1920s perspective interesting so each of them 
confront this reality in a different way. And he's saying, well, no, the time you're living in is so great. And she says, no, it's not. It's, it has to be the time before, you know, that it was so yeah. much better then. that constant yearning for, uh, for that enhanced reality. And that's where the innocence of childhood comes in and, and is kind of a filter for that because you're experiencing things for the first time. It's, it's so important to have, I think, that reality in front of you constantly that no matter what you think might have happened or could happen that was so much better before, keep the reality of, of new experience in front of you and enjoy it while it happens. And, and that just gives me the idea of like where, what direction to point our imaginations in. Cause, uh, I have a tendency to do that same thing, right? Think back. Uh, and I, I studied history at, at university and so I can imagine myself in all sorts of different times and places. And that's not a bad thing, but treating nostalgia in a helpful way, um, and I think you really have to point it at the present so that it can move towards the future because that's the only place you're going. Yeah. Nobody's going back. Uh, you know, maybe we'll figure that out, but I, I have my doubts that uh, we'll ever figure out time travel <laughs> and we can talk about the metaphysics of that at some point. But uh, yeah, is aiming your imagination forward, right? Mm. So you know, there's a lot of things that I think we both appreciate about the time when we grew up, the late 80s and the 90s, and what what was the gold in that golden age? Mm. And how can we bring that to bear today? Or what do we need to sort of resist today that uh, would keep us from some of those those good things from the past? And I think that's a more helpful way to to think about it. You know, I just think about my relationship my evolving relationship with technology mm. that uh, I'm becoming more and more critical, but really resisting the urge to, to imagine that if I just, you know, if we just went back to how things were in 1985, yeah. that everything would be better because <laughs> it obviously wasn't and it wouldn't be. Um, so I really think using our imaginations to bring them to bear on the problems that we have now and not just wishing we could go back but uh, so if, you know, if I'm critical of technology, the solution is not to get rid of certain forms of technology. It's to reform them into better versions of what they are. There's nothing new under the sun. I think. Oh, that is that is a excellent quotation. It's, um, <laughs> it's a harsh reality from the good old book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> yeah. And I actually I don't find that. Uh, that doesn't depress me mm -hmm. very much. It actually f sort of makes it makes me feel like I can actually do something right. because there's very little that's unprecedented in like an absolute sense. There's been some version or some uh, the 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 problem has been. It's like the the. The skin on thing is change uh, changes, but the how we react to them and what it brings out in us, mm -hmm. right? The human nature that we bring to bear on all our circumstances and problems that stays the same. I look at what's at the core of almost every story. You have good and you have evil. That contrast is something that we will continue to come up against uh, for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good and a lot of evil in the world today, and it's how we confront that 
that defines who we are and also defines who humanity as a whole is. So do we confront it from a perspective that's antiquated and we feel is more appropriate simply because we felt more comfortable there? Or is it our job to feel more comfortable now? Hmm. Are we like Hopper? Are we going to live in the past of our mistakes or in the past of our triumphs? Or are we going to move forward and evolve? And sometimes that confronts you when it comes right through the wall of your living room. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Stranger Still. Join us next time for a closer look at the strange and wonderful in Chapter 3, Holly Jolly. We'll defend Eleven against accusations that she's just a prop, and we'll get metaphysical about friendship. It's going to be good. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Our party may be small, but with the right friends and some lucky rolls, I think our little podcast can help a lot of people enjoy Stranger Things even more. All right, over and out. Thank you.